It is our uh, joy and privilege this morning to open the Word of God to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning, we are continuing our study of this great epistle, and we are looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18 this morning. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Let's read this passage together. Paul writes this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now you remember that we began our study of this passage last week, and we entitled this section, The Pursuit of Sanctification. The Pursuit of Sanctification. Paul's writing to the Philippian church. He's sharing with them his heart, and he is calling them to godly conduct, to holy living. And he exhorts them in this passage to pursue sanctification. Chapter 2, verse 12 contains the main imperative in this text. Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we noticed last week that Paul does not say, Work for your salvation. He does not say work toward your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Salvation is yours. Salvation is the present abiding possession of the believer in Christ. We have received salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And now that we have received salvation, we are to work out our salvation. We are to express externally what belongs to us internally, is the idea. And he calls the church to work out their salvation with an attitude of fear and trembling, with an attitude of reverence, holy awe, and godly reverence before the Lord. This is a call to sanctification. It is a call to holiness. It is a call to blameless living. And although this will never be the perfection of the Christian life, it is to be the direction for every Christian. And if there's any misunderstanding as to what Paul's after, Paul makes it clear in verse 15. He says, I want you to be blameless, that is, above reproach, free from accusation. He says, I want you to be innocent, that is, unmixed, pure, sincere, unstained by moral pollution, unstained by evil. And then he says, I want you to be children of God without blemish. You are already children of God positionally because of what Christ has done. But now, practically, I want you to be children of God without blemish. I want you to be like the Old Testament sacrificial animals who were offered to God without defect and without flaw. Paul is calling the church to holiness. And in verse 12, if there's any further misunderstanding... As to what he's after, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation. The first part of the sentence explains the second part of the sentence. 
What does Paul mean when he say, work out your own salvation? He means, I want you to obey the word of God. I want you to hupokuo, place yourself submissively under the teaching of God's word and to put it into practice in your life. So this is, it is very clear, a call to sanctification. We are to pursue sanctification. As we looked at last week, this imperative in verse 12 is sandwiched between two great indicatives, top and bottom. The top indicative, the top part of the sandwich is in verses 5 to 11. Christ has died. Christ has emptied himself. Christ, though being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself. He poured himself out, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself even further to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the first great indicative, the first half of the sandwich. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of what Christ has done in dying for our sins and being a substitute on our behalf. The bottom indicative, the bottom part of the sandwich is in verse 13. It is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The call to sanctification is founded first upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and then secondly, on the fundamental conviction that all of sanctification is a a work of God. It is the expression of God's sovereign energeo, his fruitful, powerful working in our lives. And what I told you last week is if you want to pursue sanctification in a biblical manner, you need to eat the whole sandwich. Eat the whole sandwich. Don't pick and choose the parts that you like. Some of us only want to eat the top slice of the sandwich. Christ has died. Christ has paid for my sins. That's all I need for sanctification. Some of us want to just take the middle part. I need to work. I need to be disciplined. I need to be diligent. And that's all sanctification is. And some of us want to take the bottom part and just say, well, it's God who works in me. And that's all it is. And so I'm just going to let go and let God work in my life. What I'm saying to you is that you need to eat the whole thing. All three slices are essential for a biblical approach to sanctification. You need to approach sanctification in every aspect of Christian living with indicative, imperative, indicative. That is the biblical pattern. Indicative, what Christ has done. Imperative, what we are to do in obedience to the word. And indicative, again, what God is doing to produce in us that obedience so that this obedience is not really us, our efforts alone, but it is God's expression of his work in us. This is how we are to counsel our own hearts with any aspect of sin or sanctification or any area that we need to grow in. This is what I would encourage you if you are ever helping or counseling another believer in Christ and helping them to overcome any sin. You need to go indicative, imperative, indicative. You need to tell them what Christ has done. You need to tell them what they are to do and you need to tell them what God is doing in order to produce in them that obedience. That is the biblical approach, and that is Paul's approach in this text. Now, all of this brings us to the teaching of verse 14. And I told you last week 
that I was going to present to you three specific elements of sanctification. We have the pursuit of sanctification in verses 12 to 13, the practice of sanctification in verse 14, and then the purpose of sanctification in verses 15 and 16. Last week, we looked at the first point, which is the pursuit of sanctification. This morning, I want to cover the last two points in our outline, the practice and then the purpose of sanctification. Let's look at the second point in our study, which is the practice of sanctification. Verse 14, Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now that's a very straightforward verse. There's nothing fancy or complicated about it, and I'm going to resist the temptation to make it any fancier than it is. It is very straightforward. Paul is saying in this text, stop complaining. Stop complaining. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. He takes the general exhortation of verse 12, work out your own salvation, and he brings it down to specific application and practice in our lives. And essentially he says the way that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling is by living your life in a way where you do not complain and you do not grumble against the Lord. I find this very interesting that when Paul applies the exhortation to sanctification and brings it down into everyday life, the first thing he addresses is attitude. It is attitude, not action. I would think that Paul would go another direction in his line of thinking. I would say Paul, I would think Paul would say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and then he would give us 10 things that we ought to do in our everyday lives if we are to be sanctified. Paul doesn't go in that direction. His focus is attitude. Sanctification is about attitude. Listen, if you can be sanctified in your attitude, you will be a sanctified person. If you can go through life, if you can go through work, if you can go through school, if you can go through parenting your children, if you can go through this world with all of its hassles and trials and problems, and you can maintain a sanctified attitude, you will be sanctified. Sanctification is about attitude. I mean, think about it. Remember back in Philippians chapter 1, when we looked at Paul's example and his trials? What was the one thing that stood out when he was in prison and when he was about to die, uh, potentially die? Was it not his attitude? He had an attitude of joy. He had an attitude of thanksgiving. He had an attitude of contentment. He did not grumble and he did not question God, even though if anyone would have had the right to question God. It would have been Paul. I mean, all these years of faithful ministry, all these years of faithful labor, and this is what I get, imprisonment, critics assailing me, potential death. Paul could have grumbled, and he could have questioned, and yet, instead, he rejoiced. He had a sanctified attitude, and in verse 14, he calls the church to follow his example. And he says, I want you to do all things without grumbling or questioning. You see how I'm in prison, and I'm not grumbling. I'm not questioning God. So I want the church to work out their salvation by pursuing a sanctified 
attitude. You'll note here that this is a comprehensive statement. It is not do some things without grumbling or complaining. It is not do most things without grumbling or questioning. It is do all things without grumbling or questioning. And the terms themselves are in the plural form. Grumblings or questionings is the idea. And the plural form emphasizes that all forms of grumbling and questioning are being addressed in this passage. This is a comprehensive verse calling us to sanctified attitude. The word grumbling is the Greek term gongusmas in the Greek. It's one of those words that sounds like what it means. Grumbling is that grr, grr, gongusmas that's going on in your heart when things don't go your way. And the murmuring and the complaining in our hearts. And the Old Testament speaks much about how the nation of Israel sinned in this way by having this gongusmas, this murmuring in their hearts against the Lord. Exodus chapter 16 verse 2 says, The whole congregation of the nation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 8 says, The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. Listen, grumbling is not just grumbling in general. When we grumble, we are grumbling against the Lord. We are grumbling against his provision, his sovereignty, what he has done in our lives. Numbers 14 verse 1 says, All the congregation raised a loud cry, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. I mean, you think about it. The nation of Israel had experienced the redemption of God. They had been delivered from slavery to Pharaoh through the great power of God in the ten plagues and in the parting of the Red Sea. They had witnessed the faithfulness of God. He went with them in a pillar of fire by night, in a cloud by day. He was with them, and yet... They grumbled against him. In Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I think at, in Cornerstone Bible Church, we would think that grumbling and complaining is kind of a lesser level sin. It's one of those respectable sins. It's one of those sins that you could share in your care group, and really no one would think too, too much about it. Ah, oh, yeah, you grumble. Everyone grumbles. The Lord says here that grumbling is equivalent to despising the Lord. It is treating him lightly. It is an expression of not believing the Lord. If you look at the history of the nation of Israel, why did they grumble? It's because they had forgotten the great work of redemption that God had accomplished in their life. They had forgotten how he had shown to them his grace by delivering them from slavery and bringing them into the promised land. And if the nation of Israel grumbled against the Lord by forgetting their redemption, how much more is grumbling a greater weight of sin for us? For we have experienced an even greater redemption than the nation of Israel did. Not only being delivered from slavery to Pharaoh, but being delivered from slavery to sin. Psalm 78 verse 40 says, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. You say, well, Dan, that's Old Testament stuff. New Testament is grace. It's not so severe, right? 
1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, says, We, the New Testament church, must not put Christ to the test, nor grumble as some of them did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Listen, there are things that are different from the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are different dynamics at play between God's relationship with the nation of Israel and his relationship with the New Testament church. But the one thing that remains the same is that grumbling is an expression of unbelief. Grumbling is an expression of forgetfulness. Grumbling is an expression of treating lightly the provision of God, what he has given to us. And grumbling is, as we'll see, a questioning of God's sovereignty in our lives for it is God who sovereignly ordains every aspect of our lives and when we grumble and when we complain in our hearts we are saying to God your ways and your deeds are not right and we have forgotten the grace that God has shown to us one of the cures for a grumbling heart is just go back and remember the redemption that God has accomplished in your life. The nation of Israel should have gone back and just remembered the Red Sea. They should have remembered the ten plagues. They should have remembered the Passover lamb. And because they forgot, they grumbled against the Lord. And so when Paul says here, do all things without grumbling, this is no light imperative. This is not a side issue. This He is hitting on really what is at the heart of a sanctified life. A sanctified life is, is God's grace working in our hearts in such a way where we see all of our circumstances of our life as an expression of God's sovereignty in our lives. And we trust that God is good. We trust that God is loving. We trust that God knows what he's doing. And so we rest in the sovereignty of God in our lives and we are content. We say, Lord, I trust you and I won't complain. Paul says, do all things without grumbling, and then he moves and he's, he says, do all things without questioning. Questioning, that's an interesting word. Dialogismos in the Greek is translated as evil thoughts in Mark 7, verse 21. The idea is one of disputatious reasoning. It is reasoning in the heart that is characterized by a contentious spirit. In Luke 9.46, it says that an argument rose among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. And verse 47, Jesus says, he knew the reasoning, the dialogismos of their hearts. To put it simply, questioning is having an argumentative heart with God. It is desiring to argue with God and to engage him in debate, to question his wisdom, to question his sovereignty, to question his ways. It is contending with God. Ezekiel 18, verse 29, the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Oh, how often we, as believers, in our own hearts have this reasoning. We look at our lives, and we look at our trials, and we look at how things have not turned out the way that we want them to go. And in our hearts, we may not say it in our mouths, but in our hearts we say, Lord, your ways are not right. And that is the questioning spirit that God is addressing here. Your ways aren't right, Lord. Let me advise you as to what you need to do. I have a better plan than you do. And I 
know that some of this teaching may come across as hard-hitting, but may I say to you that, brothers and sisters, this is the greatest expression of love that, as a pastor, I could give to you, is to say that as long as we are grumbling and as long as we are questioning God, as long as we are contending with God for His sovereignty and His supremacy, we will never experience a contented heart or a joyful heart. I'm sharing these things with you for your joy. Just to encourage you that, you know what, God knows what he's doing. That he is still on his throne. That there is, isn't a hair on our heads that he has not counted. That every aspect of our lives is an expression of his love and his sovereignty and his grace. And as his children, we are not in a position to question him. Paul is calling for an attitude that recognizes that God is God and we are not. God does not answer to us. He is not subject to our evaluation. You say, Dan, is this doesn't sound very grace-centered to me. Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans 9.19. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is mold to say to his molder? Why have you made me like this? In Romans chapters 1 to 8, Paul unfolds for us the gospel of Christ. He unfolds for us the grace of God. He unfolds for us the glories of justification in Christ. And then in chapter 9, he moves to this point. That all that I've said about the grace in the gospel does not mean that you as a man can contend with God. Let's put things in their perspective. We are the clay, and he is the, he is the clay maker. We are the pot, and he is the owner of the pot. Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to him who strives with the one who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? And in Job 40, verse 2, God sets the record straight when it comes to arguing with God. He says to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Brothers and sisters, when Paul says, do all things without questioning, he's calling us to humble ourselves before the sovereign hand of God and to recognize that God knows what he's doing and to accept his ways for our lives. To understand that he is running the universe according to his sovereign plan. And he has a purpose for everything he does. And we are to submit ourselves and to really just to rest in his sovereignty. Just to accept his sovereignty in our lives and to say, God, you are good, you are wise, you are kind. And not to question him. Job 40, verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. That is what Paul's calling us to. Do all things without questioning means that by the grace of God, if we have mouths that are filled with arguments against the Lord, by God's grace we humble ourselves and we place our hands over our mouths. And we say, Lord, you are the Lord. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. I don't always understand what you are doing, but I can trust 
that you know what I do not know. And so Paul says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. He calls us to a sanctified attitude as an expression of our growth in Christ. Before we move on, let me briefly note that both grumbling and questioning are not only seen in our relationship with God, but they can also be expressed in our relationships with one another. James 5 verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers. And Romans 14 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to dialogismos, not to quarrel or argue over opinions. I believe Paul is calling here for a contented heart, a gentle heart, a meek heart, a heart of kindness, a heart of gratitude, a heart of trust, a heart of peace. You're saying, Dan, where do I go to get this kind of a heart? Well, you go where Paul did. Where did Paul go to get this kind of a heart? How did Paul sit in his trials and have nothing but joy and thanksgiving and contentment In his life, well, in chapter 1, verse 21, he tells us, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Where did Paul go to get this kind of heart? He went to Christ. Because only Christ can give this kind of heart. In chapter 4, Paul talks about how I have learned in every circumstance to be content. And contentment is the idea that no matter what's going on in my life, right here, right now, with what God has given me here today, I'm satisfied. I'm thankful. It's enough. I don't need anything more. And he says, no matter what's going on in my life, I've learned to be content. You say, how did you do that, Paul? He says in verse chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. How did Paul get this heart? He went to Christ. He loved Christ. He knew Christ. He lived his life for Christ. He says, I'm leaving what lies behind. I'm pursuing what lies ahead. I just want to know Christ. It's it's when we're growing on a relationship with Christ. It's when we're walking daily with Christ that Christ gives us this kind of a heart. Even as we are pursuing this kind of heart and repenting of the grumbling and complaining, Christ is the source of this kind of contentment and joy because Christ is the one who satisfies our deepest needs of our heart. If you're having struggle dealing with this kind of a heart, go to Christ. I've been sharing my number one prayer request. If if you're ever so kind to pray for me, my number one prayer request is I just want to grow in Christ. I just want to grow spiritually in Christ. I, I think this is the best way I can serve my wife. I think this is the best way I can serve my kids. I think this is the best way I can serve the church. It's just by growing in my relationship with Christ. And I know that the more I grow in my relationship with Christ, the, more, the less I grumble and question God. And the more thankful and joyful and content I am in my heart. If you're struggling with dealing with this kind of attitude, go to Christ. And so that's the practice. The pursuit is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The practice is do all things without grumbling or questioning. And now we move to the third point in verse 15. The purpose. The purpose of sanctification. Now this third point is very important. It is very crucial. I don't want you to miss this. You know, if we just concluded our teaching in verse 14... If we just covered the pursuit of sanctification and the practice of sanctification, we might run the risk of having an imbalanced approach to the Christian life. 
we might run the risk of thinking that all of the Christian life is just about me. It is just about me growing, me being sanctified. The church is all about having a holy club in which we just grow in godliness and admire each other's godliness. If we ended our teaching in verse 14, we would run the risk of having an unhealthy introspection in the church, and that is why this third point is so crucial. What is the purpose of sanctification? What is it all for? What is the result of the church growing in holiness in the Lord? Look at verse 14. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And here's the key phrase. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, or better yet, holding forth the word of life. Let me put this as simply as I can. The purpose of sanctification is evangelistic in nature. The purpose behind growing in holiness, growing in godliness, growing with a sanctified attitude is outreach. It is testimony. It is mission. It is making an impact upon an unbelieving world. Paul presents the doctrine of sanctification not as something where the church just grows in godliness and then we're happy with that because we're all so godly and we look at each other and say, wow, you're more godlier than I am. No, you're more godlier than I am. No, Paul says the reason why we are growing, the reason we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, the reason why we are seeking to cultivate a godly attitude of joy and trust and delight in the Lord is so that we can shine as a church in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation and we can hold forth the word of life to a perverse generation which desperately needs to hear this message. The purpose of sanctification is evangelism. It is outreach. We live, verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That was true of Paul's day. That's true of our day as well. Proverbs 2, verse 13 says, there are those who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. That is an accurate description of our generation. Jesus said of his generation, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? The apostle Peter cried in Acts chapter 2 verse 40, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Is our generation any better than the generation of Christ? We know it is not. Ephesians 4.17 says that the unbelieving world walks in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The question would be, how is the church to make an impact upon a generation like this? How is the church supposed to make an impact upon a generation that has gone astray from the ways of the true and the living God? Who are crooked and twisted in their line of thinking and in their patterns of sin. How is the church to reach this generation? And some would say that the church makes an impact upon its generation by becoming like its generation. 
the way that the church is to make an impact upon this world is to become like the world. And more the church becomes like the world, the more the world will like the church. The more that the distinction between the world and the church is blurred, the more that the world will come to feel comfortable with the church. And that is how you make an impact. It's by the church becoming like the generation it lives in. Well, Paul's strategy is the completely opposite. Paul says, how does the church make an impact upon the twisted and crooked generation in which it lives? What you do is you pursue sanctification. You don't become like the world, you become different from the world. How do you become different from the world? I'm not talking about dressing differently from the world. I'm not talking about having a different accent from the world. I'm not talking about wearing different hats unlike the world. I'm talking about, we're talking about sanctification, a sanctified attitude, growing in godliness. The more we grow in sanctification, the more we will become unlike the world. Here's a hypothetical experiment for you. If you were, if you could do this this week and you were able to go the entire week without grumbling or questioning, if you were able to go to your work, go to your school, go to your kids, if you were able to go the entire week and have no grumbling, no questioning, but instead the entire week just have nothing but joy, nothing but thanksgiving, nothing but praise, nothing but contentment, your boss asks you to do something you don't want to do, you say, praise the Lord, I'm joyful, that's God's sovereignty in my life, and your kids spill the milk, you say, praise the Lord, I'm just joyful, and you were able to go through your entire week like that, at the end of the week, you would be radically different from the world around you. You'd have the same clothes, you'd have the same hairstyle, you'd have the same style, but you would be radically different in your attitude, in your sanctification. You'd be different. The world would look at you and not see something the same. They would look at you and see something completely different. That is Paul's strategy. How do you make an impact upon the world? You pursue sanctification. The distinction between the church and the world becomes more clear as the church pursues holiness in Christ. And the result of all of this pursuit is in verse 15. The church begins to shine as lights in the world. We shine literally as luminous lights. The word was most often used to describe stars in the sky. As we pursue Christ's likeness, we begin to reflect the greater light who is Jesus Christ. And we become lesser lights in this world who illumine the darkness. And Paul says that as we shine as lights in the world, we hold forth the word of life. We hold forth the word that contains life. We hold forth the word that imparts life. The word that is life, which is the message of Christ which is the gospel, which is the good news of what Christ has done and what he has accomplished on our behalf. The church holds forth this word of life. The word was used of offering food to another person. We offer to this world. We hold it out. We say, look, here it is. It is the message of Christ. It's what Christ has done. It's the good news that you can be saved and forgiven and have eternal life because Jesus has come and died for your sins. This is the word of life, and we are holding it forth. And what is the platform by which we hold forth this word of life? It is, Paul says, the, found, the platform of a sanctified life. A life of godly attitude, 
a life of joy and trust. You know, it's, it's one thing if, you know, the gospel is powerful. The gospel can save anyone. But it's one thing if someone shares the gospel with you and you know that he's just a whiner and a complainer. He bellyaches about everything. He's always just questioning his boss and questioning his coworkers. And he says, look, I got good news for you. Jesus died for your sins. And it's another thing entirely if there's a godly example who is filled with joy and praise and thanksgiving, and you watch that person and, and trials enter their lives, and they're still thankful. And they're not questioning or grumbling, but they're just filled with joy. And out of this joyful attitude, they are saying, Here is, here's the good news. Here's the word of life. Here's the word that imparts life. It is Christ and what he has done. Paul says from the platform of this pursuit of sanctification, we hold forth the word of life to this twisted and crooked generation. And we plead with them just to to believe in Christ and what he has done. The purpose of sanctification is evangelistic. It is outreach. Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be shaken. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If we've missed the purpose, then we've missed the teaching of Paul in this text. The reason why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling is not so we can form a holy club in the church. It is so we can shine as lights in this darkened world. What I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, this morning is evangelism and sanctification go hand in hand. I know we all have a tendency to compartmentalize our Christian lives and say, there's outreach over here and there's sanctification over here and here's my spiritual disciplines and then here's evangelistic ministry and they're not related and so I can kind of work on this and then work on that. And what Paul's saying is that they're all intertwined. There are some, of, some Christians who want to do evangelism and want to make an impact, but they're just not serious about sanctification. They're just not serious about repenting of sin. They're just not serious about pursuing Christ and they shortcut the, the purpose to which they want to aim for. And there's other Christians who want to pursue holiness and godliness and sanctification in the Lord, but miss the purpose of why that is for. It is all inwardly directed. It is all just being a godly person, and and they miss the purpose. No, the, the godliness is for the purpose of outreach. It's for the purpose of shining as lights in a twisted and crooked generation. Listen, do you want to make a difference in the lives of unbelievers around you? Do you want to hold forth the word of life? Do you want the gospel to go forward through your life? Start where Paul did. Don't dream up all these complicated charts. Don't make up grandiose plans. Just start where Paul did in verse 14. Stop complaining. Stop grumbling and questioning. Cultivate by the grace of Christ a godly attitude. You will shine. You will shine as a light in this world. And you will be able to hold forth the word of life to a world that desperately needs it. My prayer has been that through the teaching of this message, there would be specific application made by members of Cornerstone Bible Church and by God's grace that there would be specific unbelievers who would be impacted by our lives as we take the word of God seriously and as we seek to hupokuo, to obey it through faith in Jesus Christ, to place ourselves under it, that even this holiday season there would be some who 
would hear the gospel and believe the gospel because the church is shining as a light in this crooked and twisted generation. Paul's covered the pursuit of sanctification, work out your salvation. He's covered the practice of sanctification, do all things without grumbling or questioning. He's covered the purpose of sanctification. We hold forth the word of life to a twisted and crooked generation. And after covering all of this, Paul now concludes with some very personal words. And this last part is very important because this whole passage has been a a cry from Paul's heart. It hasn't been some impersonal lecture. It's been a personal word of affection and plea. And so Paul ends on a personal word to the church. So let's listen as Paul shares his heart with them. Verse 16, so personal. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, let me give you one last reason to pursue sanctification. I already told you that this honors Christ and his work on the cross. I already told you this honors God because it is his good pleasure to sanctify you. I already told you that this reaches the world. But let me give you one last reason to pursue sanctification. Would you do it for me? Would you do it for me, your pastor, your shepherd, your spiritual leader, your teacher? Would you do it for my joy? Would you do it so that my joy would be complete? 3 John chapter 1, verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear my children are walking in the truth. This is the greatest joy of any pastor. This is the joy of any shepherd. It is to see the church of God pursuing sanctification, walking in the truth of God. And so Paul says, would you do it for me? So that, verse 16, in the day of Christ, in the day of reward is the idea, in the day of glorification, I believe this term, the day of Christ, refers to the Bema judgment of Christ. It is the day of reward and evaluation for the believer, where God evaluates the ministry of every Christian and appropriately awards the Christian for what they have done. It is not a judgment of sin. It is a judgment of works. It is not a judgment that results in condemnation. It is a judgment that results in praise and reward. Paul says, Would you work out your salvation with fear and trembling so that when I, your spiritual leader, get to the day of Christ, when I stand before the Bema, I will be proud. That is, I will exult. I will Rejoice with glory on that day. Why? Verse 16 says, because I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, if you, the church, pursue sanctification, it will be evidence that my ministry as a spiritual leader has borne fruit. There will be appropriate rejoicing for me on the day of Christ because God will evaluate my ministry And it will be shown that my ministry was fruitful. I did not run in vain. I did not labor in vain. There was fruit. God is the one who bore the fruit. And God is the one who rewards for the fruit. So Paul says, would you do it for me? Would you do it so that my joy would be full in the future at the day of Christ?" And then he says, would you do it for me 
so that not only my joy in the future would be full, but my joy in the present would also be full. Verse 17, he says, even if, that's a first-class conditional in the Greek. The idea is since, the idea is this is actually happening, since I am currently being poured out as a drink offering. There was in the Old Testament an offering known as the drink offering. It was a smaller offering that was offered in conjunction with a bigger offering. There would be a main sacrifice, a main offering that was offered in the Old Testament. And a drink offering, which was probably a, a, a portion of wine, would be poured out alongside that bigger sacrifice. The idea is that the smaller offering would complete the bigger offering. It would fulfill and, and bring to completion the main sacrifice so that the whole sacrifice would be pleasing to God. Numbers 15.5 says, You shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. In this passage, Paul is picturing this Philippian sanctified lives as the main offering being offered to God. He is saying your pursuit of sanctification will be an act of worship. It will be a sacrifice that is given to God and my life, my trials, my imprisonment, my court date will be the smaller sacrifice. It will be offered in conjunction with your sacrifice. And the entire sacrifice together will be offered to God and will be pleasing to him and give him praise. Paul is saying, if you pursue sanctification, dear Philippians, what we will do together is together we will offer up to God a pleasing sacrifice as an act of worship. And as we do this, my joy will be full. Verse 17 says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In the end, brothers and sisters, sanctification is about joy. It is about joy. There is joy in walking in God's commands. John 15, verse 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And so as we respond to this passage that Paul has so graciously provided for us, what I would say to you this morning is this. Do it for Christ. Pursue sanctification to honor him. Pursue sanctification to honor his work on the cross, his self-emptying, his humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What I would say is do it for God. Do it for his good pleasure. Do it so that you can offer up a pleasing sacrifice unto him, one that would bring him joy because it brings him joy to see you conform to Christ's likeness. I would say to you, do it for the church. Do it so that the church could develop a blameless testimony. Do it so that the church will be innocent, without defect, without flaw, pure, unblemished in this world. Do it for the world. Do it for your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving family. Do it so you can hold forth the word of life in this twisted and crooked generation. Do it for your spiritual leaders. Do it so that in the day of Christ, your disciples, your care group leaders, 
your shepherds, those who have invested in you through the teaching and the ministry of God's word, do it so that they would have reason to rejoice on the day of Christ because their ministry will have shown not to be in vain. And lastly, if none of those reasons get to your heart, do it for your own joy. Do it because there is no greater joy for yourself than to walk in God's commandments. Do it because the sanctified life is a life of joy. Do it so that your joy can join with our joy as a church and that we can all rejoice together as we experience God's grace in our sanctification. Would you bow with me and let's close our time. Give God thanks for his word. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for the ministry of your word. We thank you, Father, for how your word is clear, how it is powerful, how it is practical. And Lord, we want to this morning ask that you would give us this sanctified attitude. Lord, help us, even as we head into Thanksgiving weekend, Lord, to repent of the grumbling and complaining in our hearts. And as we grow in our relationship to Christ, we pray that we would experience the joy and the contentment in Him. Lord, help us, even as the holidays come upon us, Lord, that we as a church would not be overly introspective. Lord, give us a heart and a compassion for those who do not know Christ. Give us a heart for this generation. Help us to hold forth the word of life that we would rejoice when unbelievers come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And Lord, as we close, we pray that we as a church would offer to you a pleasing sacrifice with our lives. In the end, this is all we want to do. We want to please you. We want to give you praise. We want to worship you. And so, Lord, fill us with your joy as we go from here. We thank you and praise in Christ's name. Amen.